America just marked the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the landmark Supreme Court case that legalized abortion nationwide. Now, the nation heads into its first presidential election cycle since that decision was overturned. What will that mean here in Illinois and elsewhere? We'll talk about that on this edition of Capital Cast. Hello, and welcome to Capital Cast, a regular podcast of Capital News Illinois. I'm Peter Hancock. For the last half century, abortion politics have been front and center in federal, state, and local elections throughout the country. That was due in large part to the landmark Roe v. Wade decision that was handed down on Monday, January 22, 1973. It said women have a constitutional right to have an abortion, at least during the early stages of pregnancy, and that states had some latitude to regulate the procedure after that. That decision set off a decades-long political battle between supporters and opponents of abortion rights who sought to elect candidates who would reflect their views. It was especially important in presidential elections because, as we all know, presidents have the power to appoint Supreme Court justices who would have the power to vote to either uphold, scale back, or even overturn the rights described in Roe. Two generations after Roe, in June 2022, a different, more conservative Supreme Court made an about-face. In the case Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the new court ruled 6-3 that the Roe decision was wrong and that there is no federal constitutional right to abortion. Writing in a separate opinion, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote that the impact of the Dobbs decision was merely to take the question of abortion rights out of the hands of judges. After today's decision, he wrote, the nine members of this court will no longer decide the basic legality of pre-viability abortion for all 330 million Americans. That issue will be resolved by the people and their representatives in the democratic process in the states or Congress. So the question many are asking now is, how important will the issue of abortion rights be in a presidential race? Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, a Democrat and a strong supporter of abortion rights, was asked that question at a news conference on the day of the anniversary. The issue of abortion in the 2024 elections is perhaps the most intense uh, issue that will be debated and discussed throughout this year. And I believe that a majority of Americans will go to the polls understanding that if they vote against the pro-choice candidates, that's Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, that they are voting to take away abortion rights and fundamental rights from women across the nation. So I think this is a vital issue and it will be determinative in the end uh, for what happens in November. State Representative Margaret Croak is another staunch supporter of abortion rights. A Democrat from the 12th District of Chicago, she also serves on the Democratic Party of Illinois' State Central Committee. I recently spoke with her via Zoom and asked her how important she thinks abortion will be in federal elections this year. 
I have never had the thought that it would not be the top issue, both in state, but also federal elections. Just because the Supreme Court has decided that they were going to overrule Roe v. Wade with Dobbs does not mean that there cannot be federal action taken on legislation to either completely outlaw abortion or on the other side of things, protect women's reproductive health care. So in your role on the state central committee, um, how do political parties now message the issue of abortion? Um, when it comes to what I've seen personally and what I would do is as a mom, I've got three little kids um, and I plan to have more children. The way that I message abortion is much more on a health standpoint and family planning. Um, I have a lot of friends of my age, I'm 31 years old, who are also going through having like their first kid and expanding their families. And they are completely terrified about being in a situation in which their doctor would not be able to act to save their lives. And that's that's where I come from on the issue of abortion for the most part, um, is that the legislature is restricting a doctor and what they've trained, what they've been trained to do. Um, and we are handcuffing them almost literally. That is a threat um, that doctors are under right now from performing life-saving care. Is this something, uh, of course, you know, Chicago is hosting the Democratic Convention this year. Uh, is this something we should expect to hear a lot about during the convention? I think so, because I, I think Chicago and Illinois um, are an example of what women's reproductive health care can look like when there are no restrictions on a woman's right to choose. And I think that that's something that we want to show the country. Um, we're also probably going to have to show um, that Illinois has become this safe haven for women's reproductive health care. And we are going to be under even more strain as additional states roll back these protections. We've had such an increase in women coming out of state to receive life-saving care in a lot of different situations. Um, and I, I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to show that. Okay. And so now in your role as a state legislator, uh, mm -hmm. is there anything else you think Illinois needs to be doing or Illinois can do uh, to expand access to abortion? The only thing that we haven't done that seems to be talked about a lot is a constitutional amendment. I don't know if that is going to be front and center for the next few years. I think right now we're focused on how are we going to be dealing with this influx of, of individuals coming to the state for care. Um, we need to, there's that, I think there's also protecting um, women from getting false information from crisis pregnancy centers. I know that the AG has made their decision on enforcing that. And unfortunately, I don't agree with it. Um, but that's that's where I think the state is at, the state of Illinois. Just because we are so centrally located, we border five different states. Um, and it's it's going to start straining our healthcare system. Do you think it's time for a constitutional amendment? And do you think you could get one through... Uh through the legislature right now? 
Um, I think we'd have to sit, look at what a constitutional amendment looks like. Um, while I am for an amendment that would include gender affirming care, I think that makes it a more difficult amendment to pass on the state level. We also have a very high threshold for passing a constitutional amendment, and we've seen with the fair tax that we can get really, really close to that. But unfortunately, sometimes it's not going to be successful. Uh, so I would like a constitutional amendment eventually, but I do think that the legislature has done a very good job of uh, making sure what we have in statute right now would protect against a, let's say, like a very zealous governor who's anti-choice. Um, I don't have the same fear at the state level that I do on the national level about getting a anti-choice Republican crazy governor because I know Illinois is is pretty protected. Um, the state, I mean, the, the country, however, that's not the case. That was Democratic State Representative Margaret Croak of Chicago, who also serves on the Democratic Party's State Central Committee. Capital News Illinois also reached out to the Illinois Republican Party and to the Republican Caucus of the Illinois House. They all declined to be interviewed on this topic. But we were able to get the perspective of two independent political science professors who study public opinion, voting behavior, and elections. Brian Gaines is from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and E.J. Fagan teaches at the University of Illinois-Chicago. To get some historical perspective, I started off asking Brian Gaines how abortion became such a dominant issue in American politics. I'm going to quibble with you slightly and say I think it, it's it's been a, a constant presence in American elections. It's been very big in some. Um, it hasn't always been big. There, there definitely there's a set of voters. When you ask what what was the basis of your vote, there's a, sm a pretty small set of voters who will say abortion in every election since then. Um, some of them are saying uh, abortion rights. They're on the the pro-choice side. They're on the left. Some are on the right. They're the pro-life voters saying abortion drives my vote entirely. I'm not thinking about guns. I'm not thinking about foreign policy. I'm picking on my candidate on the, on the basis of abortion. But it hasn't, um, it hasn't been the, you know, the top issue in every election. What's striking about it, I think, is that it's, uh, those voters are always there. They haven't gone away. And that the parties over this period, you know, 50 years is a long time. I'm, I'm fond of saying 50 weeks is a long time in politics. Even 50 days is pretty long. So those 50 years saw uh, a really dramatic separation of the parties. There used to be people on both sides of the abortion issue in both parties. Quite a lot of Democrats, uh, particularly with uh, sort of the blue-collar electorate, um, maybe uh, fairly religious uh, voters, lots of Catholics in the district who were opposed to abortion, and lots of Republicans and maybe you know, some of them in the more suburban uh, affluent districts who were um, essentially pro-choice Republicans. Both of those are, are endangered species now. The parties are almost completely sorted. So, um, you know, I agree with you that abortion has been a constant issue. It's been a big issue in particular elections. I, I, I'm quibbling with huge. I think it's been um, quite big in some, but not huge throughout. And but but I think the separation is really what strikes me as the most interesting and dramatic thing, how the parties have become almost perfectly separated. Well, and maybe it's fair to say that it's been more of an issue in some parts of the country than in other parts of the country, some congressional districts versus others gubernatorial races. Uh, EJ, let me go to you. Uh, Brian was talking about how there has been this block of sort of single-issue voters, uh, whether they were pro-choice or pro-life. 
were they roughly the same size? Did one dominate the other or did they sort of cancel each other out? Yeah, I mean, it, abortion didn't affect a lot of elections directly you know, over that period because it was a very closely divided issue. And it was an issue that wasn't on the table largely as a partisan issue before 1973 and Roe v. Wade. So if you look at abortion uh, politics before that, you look at, in fact, evangelical Christian politics before that, there isn't a clear party separation. Um, if you look at women's rights issues, um, there's not a clear party separation. A wonderful political scientist named Christina Wolbrecht has done some really cool research on this where she has shown that uh, that abortion just immediately transforms the role of gender in American politics. Now, there's other things going on at that time. The role of uh, women in the workplace is changing. The role of women in the family is changing. But abortion really becomes the issue that catalyzes this change on women's rights beginning in 1973 very, very rapidly. Um, but one one thing about an electoral impact of a policy issue that we think about as political scientists is we think about the visibility of that policy issue. Um, that low visibility issues often have a muted impact on voters because most voters aren't paying very close attention. The voters that are paying very close attention, they're partisans, and they are already divided on the issue. But most voters are not partisans. Most voters, you know, try to avoid politics at all times. And so what Roe v. Wade did was it kept the issue off the agenda. Elections had very few stakes on abortion. So if uh, Republicans were elected in a state that were very pro-life, it did not radically change the availability of abortion services, um, or at least didn't have a huge visible impact on the avail availability of abortion services in that state. And then Dobbs happens. And all of a sudden, all of those stakes are real. And all of these Republicans who have been promising a very unpopular policy position or a position that was revealed to be unpopular, which is very, very harsh uh, restrictions on abortion, very strong penalties for people who perform abortions, all of a sudden that becomes real to voters. And I think that's what changes in 2022. And I think we see a very real impact on elections. Okay. So let me ask, um, the way it sorted voters, the way uh, people in favor of pro-right of uh, of abortion rights sort of gravitated toward Democrats, uh, people opposed to abortion gravitated toward Republicans, and I'm painting with a very broad brush here uh, that wasn't universally true, although I think it became more true as time went on. Uh, was that kind of sorting, was that inevitable? Was it inevitable that the pro-choice people would gravitate toward Democrats and uh the pro-life people would gravitate to Republicans, or did the parties sort of engineer that on their own? Uh, it was both. It was engineered both by the sorting of groups into parties. So you had this unsorted group before Roe v. Wade. You had evangelical Christians that were largely demobilized, um, that were not voting on the grounds of evangelical Christians. The Christian right did not exist. And one thing that Paul Weyrich, who was a Republican activist, he founded the Heritage Foundation. And others realized immediately after Roe v. Wade was that there was an opportunity here to make that a very powerful uh, group for Republicans. And it became very powerful for Republicans under Ronald Reagan in the 1980s was kind of the heyday of their group of, of their power. But even today, uh, evangelical Christians became are still the most uh, powerful organized interest within the Republican Party. I mean, if you look at who replaced Kevin McCarthy a few months ago. It was not, uh, you know, a business guy, you know, from from the Chamber of Commerce. It was essentially the leader of evangelical Christians in the United States Congress. And uh, and I think that is all due to Roe v. Wade. Now, there certainly are other issues that help that sort together. And certain issues have ways of sorting together. It, it is um, it is uh, 
it, it is is not possible to pair you know every social group together and, and every major interest group together. Some of them just are just incompatible. But I would look at you know the Ford administration, the last administration that's a pro-choice Republican administration. Uh, you know Betty Ford was a leader on abortion rights. She was a leader on the Equal Rights Amendment. That's a different future you could imagine, and I think you have a very different electoral coalition if that's the case. But that's not the way we went, and I think that you know today this is as polarized as an, as any issue in American politics. Uh, Brian, what do you think? Uh, was it a natural kind of sorting that one side would go Republican, the other would go Democrat, uh, or do you think it was sort of engineered? I think it's a natural sorting. I think it's not. Um, I, I'm going to be uh, you know, a really fluffy academic kind of answer and say uh, there's a tendency to, th to think whatever happened would could only have happened that way. And so it was inevitable. And, and I can imagine a, a hypothetical universe where things play out differently. Um, I'll draw one contrast with the uh, attitudes on same-sex marriage moved much more sl uh, slowly at first and then very rapidly. And we could say, well, that yeah, now that's inevitable. But if you think back to the... Um, partisan politics on same-sex marriage in the Clinton administration, the parties are not sorted. And in fact, the public, uh, the Congress reflects public opinion fairly well in um, leaning against, uh, there's some openness to um, alternatives to marriage, but the idea that marriage would be extended to same-sex couples was uh, seemed pretty far-fetched in the early Clinton days. And there's a rapid swing. Um, so, you know, abortion looks very different in the dynamics. And I, I could say, yeah, of course, this is a a, a, a very important um, social policy issue of the kind that's going to move the left to the left party and the right to the right party. That's what we've seen. But we don't see that universally. Um, and it's it's kind of hard to say, yeah, I, 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 maybe I'm echoing EJ on this, that it's not just about the, you know, what the public thinks and what's the natural party for them. Uh, there, there have to be activists uh, on both sides, people, entrepreneurs, policy entrepreneurs, issues entrepreneurs. Who want to make this a, a prominent issue for the party who see gains for the party of some kind, or, or even you know within the party in primary terms, I'm going to I'm going to win the primary in my party by making this a big issue because it's going to favor me versus others in my party. Um, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'll back up to one other question about uh, what does the public opinion look like on abortion? Um, I think there's a really interesting uh, unsolved puzzle at the moment. So we we had Dobbs, and then we have uh, your you know set this up by saying we're waiting for the, for the presidential election post-Dobbs. But we had a lot of, uh, depending how you count them, half dozen state referenda where the pro-choice side has won. And I think a lot of people have concluded this is the other shoe dropping. The American public, uh, the Supreme Court was out of line with the, the public opinion. It's not their job to be in line with the public opinion. You could say that's fine. But the Amer American public has swung decisively in the pro-choice direction. If you just start with survey data, you can find data that suggests yeah, that's right and other data that suggests almost exactly the opposite. So I want to contrast two things, the Gallup series on the percentage who say that abortion should be legal under any circumstances. Um, and uh, this goes back to uh, almost right after Roe v. Wade. They started asking in the late 70s. We have a long time series of this. If you look at the Gallup numbers, it's around 20%. It goes up to up to close to 40 in the 90s, back down. Um, in the 2020s, we're back up just under 40. It looks uh, fairly stable in, in, in the range of something like a third of Americans are saying this, and it wiggles up and down year to year. The general social survey, which is a, an, much less data, it's an annual survey. It's a, basically a, an academic study with a, very, a pretty big sample. It's um, uh, kind of the sociologists' preferred uh, annual data on public opinion. They have a 
pretty similar question. Do you support legal abortion for any reason? The GSS, the General Social Survey, has a series of questions. They try to find out how many people will support abortion if it's because of rape, if it's for sex selection, a pregnant woman does, doesn't want to have the, uh, a girl, wants to have a boy, et cetera. So the for any reason is the strongest. You know, um, doesn't matter what the reason is, I support it. You look at those data and they look very different from Gallup. They soar upwards uh, starting just before Dobbs, actually. It's not a backlash. It's uh, 2019, 2020, 2021. They're over 50% for the first time in the series. It had been kind of like Gallup, uh, 70s and 80s, early 90s, it went up a little bit more. And then they just diverge in the last uh, four years or so. So I don't think one is right and one's wrong necessarily. I just, when I look at those things, I don't know the answer. I think it's always been true about cervix data on abortion that um, the item that you get very different answers with very just slightly different wording in the item. But these are almost exactly the same item and still we have this big difference. And so I think to some degree, anything, if, if anybody tells you what we know what the American people think of abortion, you should take it with a grain of salt. Uh, it's a <laughs> very hard issue. It's very conditional. People's answers might depend on whether they're in the midst of a campaign, whereas EJ mentioned people are talking about laws that will uh, that seem punitive towards women who want an abortion or uh, doctors who perform an abortion, or they're asked about questions about late-term abortions and the ethics of, uh, and they're thinking of this as a morality issue or a policy issue. You get quite different answers. So I'm um, agnostic, not even right term. I just, I think uh, I, I'm the guy who always wants to say it's more complicated than that when someone says, well, we know what the public thinks. Uh, on abortion, they think a lot of things. There's some inconsistency and it's very contextual. I think uh, what, you know, there, there are diehard people who will tell you, absolutely, abortion is murder. I'm totally against it. Abortion is a woman's right, a fundamental right. I'm totally for rights for it. There are a lot of people in the middle who have a mix of views that they'll go both ways. And, and a given survey can sort of mislead you into thinking the public has swung dramatically in a way that maybe is not a permanent swing. Okay, so let's fast forward here to 2016 uh, and the race between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Uh, over the years, I think it's fair to say that um, the evangelical Christian movement uh, really gravitated toward Republicans and as this became more and more polarizing, uh, evangelical Christians, it, by the time 2016 rolled around, evangelical Christians went solidly behind Donald Trump, who is anything but the poster child for evangelical Christian values. And they did so solely on the promise that he was going to appoint judges and Supreme Court justices uh, who were pro-life, uh, who would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. He got into the White House. He did what he said he would do. And now Roe v. Wade has been overturned with the Dobbs decision. And one of the first things that we heard from some corners was, this doesn't really change anything. It just sends the issue back to the states. Uh, it's now a state issue to be decided. It's no longer a federal issue. So we've got this presidential race coming up in 2024. Is that true? Can uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump or whoever the Republican nominee is just walk away from abortion because it's no longer a national issue? Or is it still at play here? EJ, let's start with you. Sure. I think that it clearly has become a very powerful state issue. That is, we have seen many of the 2022 and 2023 elections turn on abortion. 
Um, most recently in Kentucky, the governor's race in Kentucky, Andy Bashir, a Democrat, was running for re-election. And by far, everybody that I've seen analyze the, the race has agreed that the most powerful thing he did was run a very poignant ad uh, featuring a woman seeking an abortion. And in Kentucky, that was illegal. In fact, Bashir, uh, in, a, in a very red state with a supermajority Republican legislature, can't really do anything about that, even now that he's been reelected. And yet that essentially sunk his the, his opponent's campaign. And we've seen uh, in Ohio, in Montana, in Kansas, in many other red states, we've seen the pro-choice side win referendum that were on the ballot. And there will be a few more on the ballot in 2024. So it became a very powerful state's issue. Now, federal especially presidential politics, are an incredibly different animal. Uh, Donald Trump is not going to want to talk about abortion. He's going to want to pretend that he was never pro, pro-choice, that he, you know, he has no responsibility for what happened, and he's incredibly good at misdirecting people's attention. He's going to try to make the election about other stuff. And Joe Biden and Democrats are going to try to do the opposite. And I think that you would expect probably mixed success for both of them. Um, voters are aware of this issue. It is an issue that is on the agenda, that's in the news. There will be news events that come up that bring it into the news, but also there will be news events that come up about any other issues, right? This is going to be an election about everything, about race, about democracy, about immigration, about foreign policy. And um, I, I think your first expectation should be that, no, that an issue does not matter. That is, uh, any issue would have a very small impact on the election. That could turn a close election, especially in states where abortion has proven to be very popular, like Michigan. But I think that uh, you should start with the expectation that any issue has a relatively small impact on the presidential election. And Brian, what about you? I mean, is it still an issue or do you think maybe uh, people have sorted themselves out over the last 50 years to such an extent that it's really not going to make that much difference in a presidential race. Um, I, I'm going to come close to saying, I think what EJ said that I start thinking it's not going to be the major story in the aftermath of the 2024 election. We're not going to be writing a lot about this. Uh, there was an abortion effect here, but I'm very uncomfortable predicting the 2024 presidential election. It's such a weird entity. Um, I, just, I wrote an op-ed recently saying, you know, it's possible Donald Trump could be convicted and denied bail before voting, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I think we'll see some delays, but he's he's got so many legal cases. There are so many other things to talk about. I think Republicans will be talking a lot about uh, whether Joe Biden, cognitively and stamina and other terms, is capable of being president. Is he already letting other people make the decisions? He's uh, you know a figurehead, keeping an incredibly light schedule. Democrats will be saying incessantly, Donald Trump is a. Uh, dire threat to democracy, not a little threat. We know just how, da- how dangerous he is. We cannot let this man have power. Abortion could easily be crowded out in, in that uh, world, and then events might inter- intervene in a way that um, you know, it doesn't get talked about. It probably will matter in some states. I think Democrats aren't expecting abortion to deliver them the presidency. They're thinking um, swing voters in the end won't be able to stomach voting for Donald Trump, and that's where their, their ticket. But I think that they're thinking they can win House races in select states if they drive up turnout. Um, that's easier in 22 and 23. EJ is right about those referenda. Uh, some pretty red states had results that in some respects look surprising. Basically, the you know the left, the this was not strictly a partisan issue, but we're saying the parties are pretty well sorted. The pro-democratic side, the pro-choice side won handily. Some of that was spending in almost all those states. The pro-choice side did greatly outspent the pro-life side, and that might not happen in 2024. They were sort of out-hustled. 
Um, some of it might be the public opinion that the GSS is more right than Gallup and people really are moving towards uh, the, the pro-choice direction and, and not the people at the polls, but the sort of swing voters in the middle who feel conflicted on the issue. Um, but I think that the, the state effect is, if we see a state effect, we might be saying here are five to eight house races that probably turn because of a little bit higher turnout because of an abortion item. And I think the House is going to be really on a knife edge. So it could be that's why the Democrats uh, took the House again. Um, but the presidency, it's it's going to be a very weird election. And I, I think in, my guess is the aftermath is not going to be about abortion. Donald Trump is looking like he's moving away from his last position. He's very good, as EJ says, well, but shifting, shifting ground quickly. What he stands for is not necessarily what he stood for before. Okay, well, I guess we'll have to wait until November to find out the definitive answer to that. In the meantime, that'll do it for this edition of Capital Cast. Capital Cast is a production of Capital News Illinois, a statehouse reporting project of the Illinois Press Foundation, with funding from the Robert McCormick Foundation. If you enjoy listening to Capital Cast, remember that you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and a lot of other places. Until next time, this is Peter Hancock, and as always, thank you for listening.